Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. Now, Rory, I know... Some people think I bang on about your old school too much, but I think given that it was the second most raised subject amongst our listeners this week, uh, no, third, actually, World Cup and uh, Brexit were one and two, and third was Eton. Let me just give you a flavour of some of them. Lorna, this is for you, Rory. As a former Etonian, what are your thoughts of the behaviour of those pupils who verbally abuse visiting students? Is that type of behaviour commonplace? John Sheeran. Given the behaviour of Eton students this week and that my vox pop within an admittedly small demographic of a village pub were not in the least surprised by it, I was wondering if that behaviour gels with Rory's experience of the institution. Simon Walken, Rory is a fellow boarding school survivor. Do you think the British boarding system has overall done more harm or good when its contribution to our nation's story is considered? And there are lots of questions about whether Eaton should have invited Nigel Farage. I don't have a problem with that at all. Nigel Farage is a significant political figure, whether we like that or not. And I think it's right that students should hear from him. But Rory, they booed and abused state students who were invited to the event. Yeah, it was very, I mean, it, it's... I, it seems to be very sad. Everything I've read about it is very disappointing. I think it's not something I recognize or remember. It seems very, very unpleasant. I guess the only kind of context you could put is a bunch of... Oiks. <laughs> a bunch of oiks. classic titled arrogant oiks. How about that? That's right. And I guess, I guess, I, I suppose you might say, if you were trying to make a defense, you probably don't want to make a defense, but you might say that it's part of the general coarsening and reckoning of our politics that basically what they were doing was baying support for Nigel Farage on his comments on migrants and his comments on, I guess, Brexit was his other thing, wasn't it? Even Farage said that he found the behaviour somewhat riotous. I don't know whether in his views riotous is good or bad, but I, I don't think he was terribly impressed by it. Yeah, no, that, that was not, not a good moment in Eaton's history, but... Schools apologise profusely and it's taken disciplinary action against the students, but it's obviously something that is not good. Do you think those that they've disciplined will or will not one day be members of the Bullingdon Club? I suspect they probably will. <laughs> and the head teacher, the headmaster, Rory, who we know is a listener to this podcast because he's sent you rebuttal before, yep. he's more than welcome to send us rebuttal. In fact, I think he'd be quite an interesting guest, actually. Would, would you like him as a guest? On the I'd show? love him as a guest. Yeah, I'd <laughs> okay. love the. So this right. is an open invitation to the head teacher Eaton um, <laughs> to to be a guest on our podcast. Sure, he'd be delighted to be on the show. Right now, here's a here's a question for you, House of Lords. So Keir Starmer seems to have stated that he's very interested in radical reforms to the House of Lords, and it looks as though, at least the way the Guardian reported it, that he's interested in a elected second chamber. So here are some questions around it. Chris Taylor, is the Labour commitment to abolish the Lords a deliberate distraction to avoid electoral reform of the Commons? Ian Coulshaw, with Labour coming out saying they would abolish the House of Lords, how would they accomplish that? Would they need the Lords to vote for the abolition of themselves? Mm, that is a very good question. Um, 
The answer today is yes. No, no. Well, not really, because we. I went through this with Cameron. I mean, they in the end, the House of Commons can force it through. Oh no, hold on a minute. They, but but only if it's a commitment in the manifesto. Yeah, it, it would. It have to be a manifesto. So they'd have to. Yeah. You, they couldn't just do it like that. They'd have to say. Yeah. I mean, well, I was really interested in that, but you know, I've often said to you before that I think that you have to have a kind of overall strategy on these big issues, and it's sort of. It felt to me like it was dropping out of a bit of a clear blue sky. Um, I suspect it's related to the work that Gordon Brown is doing. He's coming up with a bigger constitutional review. I do think that, you know, we talked about, if you remember, we talked to Keir Starmer on the podcast and, and you were very disappointed that he wasn't seized of what you saw and I see as the need for pretty profound constitutional reform. And this said to me, he's at least moving in that direction. Yeah, he's moving that direction. I can remember, by the way, when we just getting rid of the hereditary peers my god that was a struggle almost almost yeah incredible incredible well i was very much involved in pushing back against cameron's proposals on reform of the house of lords and the concern i mean many many concerns then but one of the biggest ones is that if you have an elected second house and kiss thomas tried to say he sort of gestured in this guardian article the idea it's going to be elected but he's also said, well, of course, it's going to be just a revising chamber. It's not going to threaten the primacy of the House of Commons. That, I think, is very difficult because if the second chamber is elected, they will quite understandably, being politicians, stand up and say, oi, we're elected. We have just as much right to be here as the House of Commons. And we're not going to put up with just being a sort of rubber stamp second chamber. And they'll start flexing their muscles. And that's where you're going to end up with the risk of more of a US system, a gridlock mm. between the Senate and Congress. But you do have, there are, there are examples around the world of, you know, we were talking to Julia Gillard and, uh, you know, they have, they're sort of based on our system, but, but, but they're both elected, aren't they? There are elections to, to both houses. So I think you could work that out. Yes. I don't know how much power, how much power the Australian Senate has. Nor do I, nor do I. 76 senators, doesn't it? I think, look, I agree, where I agree with you, I, I think the House of Commons has to be the superior house. But these are, look, this is without a doubt, this is one area where the, there will be a lot of devil in a lot of detail. But I, th I just took at least some heart that the, the issue of constitutional reform was on the agenda. And of course, PR, I sort of blow hot and cold on PR. Some days I think it's so blindingly obvious and we should do it. And other times I think, well, you know, I saw the other day Nigel Farage in favour of PR. And I thought, what's that about? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the reason I'm, of course, in favour is that I think it's the only way to break up the sort of death grip of these two very, very weird political parties that we've had dominating our political system for the last hundred years, mm, is to mm. give a chance for new parties to come through. And, and I, I've got a lot of friends currently standing, actually, a lot of them standing to, to be Labour candidates. And my goodness, the pain of trying to get selected as a Labour oh, candidate yeah. in associations Absolutely. and the madness of fighting sort of relics of Momentum Corbynistas, getting stuck in very weird fights about who was a local councillor, who wasn't, incredible sort of weird internal politics. And it, it's just as bad in the Conservative Party. But both of them, I think one of the real weak points of both the Conservative and Labour parties is the way that the candidates are selected and this kind of death grip that these small numbers of party members have over the people who eventually end up being our ministers. Mm -hmm. Andrew Fieldwick. One for Rory, although I think I'd like to answer this one too. How do you feel about the approach of your former party on voter ID and the fact that ID will be acceptable for one group of voters is not acceptable for another group? And this is, I think, related to 
travel cards that if you're a pensioner and you have a photo ID, Oyster card, wherever it might be, you can use that to vote. If you're a young person with something similar, you can't. And I do feel this is about suppressing the vote. I think there's a very, very good answer to this, which is we need ID cards. You know, this idea that we don't need ID cards, I think, dates back to a world, a much earlier, more innocent age. And I think Mm. ID cards would solve a lot of problems. Yet again, you're in the same agenda as Tony Blair, my God. And well, given also that the governments are now able to, as it were, monitor us in every single way, and these telephones we cover in our pocket apparently are giving Google more information than you can believe about every one of us, I find the idea that people should have ID cards would solve so many problems. It would solve these problems to an election. It would also actually be very, very relevant for debates around immigration, relevant debates about crime. So I, I'm, I'm, for, I'm for the ID card. Well, it's one of the reasons, the French say, why people who, who get to France then want to continue the journey is because, of course, in France they do have ID cards and more people can sort of disappear into the... The, the shadier ends of the economy if they if they come over here. But this scheme, Roy, this voter ID scheme, the other thing I do not understand, it's going to cost, according to the Cabinet Office, £180 million per decade. Now, how it adds up to that, <laughs> God knows, but that's their own estimate. They say 50, 55 million or more detailed polling cards, 20 million or more poll clerks, 9 million for the Electoral Commission, 20 million to people, tell people it's happening, 7 million on training, 2 million on equipment. And this is a, this was a move designed to deal with what t- it turned out there was one case of somebody who had actually used somebody else's identity to vote. And I do, I do think there's a sort of bit of the sort of Trumpian suppression of the vote going on here, Rory. Yeah, I well, okay. I mean, I'm 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 you don't less agree. convinced. I'm less convinced by that. Well, why are they wasting? Why are they wasting? They talk about people's priorities. That is not a people's priority. Well, there's there's sort of two things going on, aren't there? And it is true that there are cases of voter fraud. There were horrible voter fraud in Tower Hamlets, where actually the courts had to intervene in order to deal with extraordinary cases of corruption and voter fraud. I oh, know, that was covered by law. That is already a criminal offence. We're talking about here about the use of somebody else's photo identity, to somebody else's identity to cast somebody else's vote. It, 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 is, it is true that compared to many other, I mean, I'm, like you, I've been seeing lots of other elections around the world and used to go around monitoring elections. It is surprisingly easy to vote in a British election. Um, so I think it's fine to say that you need a system. I think the reason I want ID cards is I'd like to give a system which is perfectly fair to everybody and every young person would have an ID card and they just turn up and vote in the normal way. Mm. And, and of course, you're, you're right also that there is a right wing thing going on, which is that this is a very, very politicized issue in the United States. And often these things spill over from the United States because DeSantis, of course, made it a big question. Mm. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. 
He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Restless Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Now, we covered, we talked a fair bit about the World Cup in the, the main podcast, but there's, there's some interesting questions. One here from Saif Ahmed. As a British Muslim, I found it saddening to see the BBC not broadcast the opening ceremony of the Qatar World Cup, especially as it involved the recitation of the Quran. What do you make of the BBC's choice not to broadcast it? Um, interesting. I was a bit surprised that, I turned on the telly and it wasn't on. Your friend and my friend Gary Lineker defended it, saying the BBC doesn't usually broadcast the opening of the World Cup. But given how much energy and razzmatazz goes into it, I mean, it is really like a, a mini Olympic opening ceremony and a lot mm. of energy went into the performance. I think it was strange they didn't televise it. I don't think you should call him our friend and colleague. He's our boss. Uh, he's our boss. He's sorry. our boss, yeah. He's, he, he sits above us and he's sitting in Qatar now, sort of checking the data, making sure that we're filling out the Albert Hall night after night and you know so we have to we have to we have to bow down in respect he is a very 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 good broadcaster i think we have to say that don't we extraordinary broadcaster yeah that's absolutely right now what about this one mm kwanga okay curious to know your thoughts this is to both of us i yeah. think on sunak putting a stop to ministers doing the daily round will this stick is this a bit like blair changing the frequency of prime minister's questions something that will become the norm even if labor come into power it is quite interesting this i'm trying to remember whether we always had somebody to go up and do the rounds and i know when i was presenting good morning britain there was like you know you had the labor person at this time and the government yeah. person at this time and i did i don't know if it's right but sunak apparently is the number 10 operation is saying that we shouldn't just put people up every day to to do the round and I have some sympathy because I think that, you know, I think ministers should expose themselves to proper scrutiny. The best of that ought to be in Parliament. Uh, All too often it's not, but that's where it should be taking place and ministers should be putting themselves up there more often as well. But I think the idea that ministers are just kind of commentators who should go out and sort of talk about what's in the papers every morning, I'm not sure that's right. So, yes, exactly. So to just explain the daily round, that's when – there was a tradition where number 10 would literally, and I, I used to do this, you you do Good Morning Britain, you do BBC Breakfast, you do the Today programme, and you just sort of go back to back. Mm. Um, and you have a little briefing to go out. And I, no, I can, I can see why they want to move one of this. Um, hey, a small opportunity for me to plug, small opportunity for me to plug, which I'm going to hook off a very nice question, which has come in from somebody who's been reading my book, The Places in Between. So it's from somebody called Kieran. 
He says, would love to hear Rory talk about his writing more and push him into yet more embarrassing plugs. So here's my plug. Um, my, my Radio 3... That was pathetic. That was pathetic. My Radio 3 program on Basil Bunting, the great Northumbrian poet who wrote this amazing work called Brig Flats in the 1960s, early 1960s, uh, will be on on Sunday evening. So anyone tuning in, Radio 3, just after 6 on Sunday evening, read about it in the Radio Times, but... We had a lot of fun traveling around Northern England, uh, researching this remarkable figure who basically, I mean, he's a sort of inspiration to all of us. Basil Bunting was working as a junior editor on a regional newspaper in, in Newcastle in his early 60s, in his tweed jacket and going back and forth on the commuter train. Oh, this is a very, very long plug. Very and long on plug. The, on the commuter train, he managed to <laughs> write this incredible masterpiece called Brig Flats, which was one of the great poems of the 20th century, and suddenly at the age of 63, launched into international stardom and put Northumbrian poetry on the map. But Rory, given the time that you invest in the podcast and flying backwards and forwards to the Albert Hall and the Palladium and these radio programs, when do you have time to do your day job? Well, this, this program, to be fair, I recorded before my day job in defense with all, all the employees of Give Directly, the charity listening to the show who will be worrying about that too. This, this was recorded before I, I took up my job. Less time now for Radio 3 programs. Now here's one we can play. I, I'm sure, Rory, now that you're a massive football fan, hooked on the World Cup and loving every, every twist and turn, you probably play fantasy football as well, don't you? And I'm going to let you play fantasy prime minister with this question from Ellis Davis. And it's, it's really an interesting one. If Sunak had not been hamstrung to keep Hunt on as chancellor, who do you think he would likely have appointed to number 11? And what would the recent financial statement have looked like? That's a good question, isn't it? It's a really, 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 really good question. So who do you reckon if Sunak had had a free hand as opposed to Hunt as the guy who stabilizes the markets? I think that's a really good question. Who do you reckon? I think possibly Sajid Javid. But he's not even there. Remember, he and Rishi Sunak resigned together, and that was really the beginning of the end of Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson was gone sort of two days later. So I think there was a good chance, and Sajid was an early, you know, an early supporter of, of Rishi. So I think something happened there. I don't know what the story is, and I, 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 I should catch up with Sajid and try to understand more. But my assumption is that probably... Sajid was hoping to come back as Chancellor, and given that he didn't get it, probably didn't want to take a more junior role. What about Mel Stride? Yeah, I'm a big Mel Stride fan, big Mel Stride fan. I'm also a big, big, big fan of a guy called Damien Hines, who's now the prisons minister, but I would have liked to see back in the cabinet. Yeah, but Rory, you're talking about, Rory, you're talking about the people that you like. We're talking about <laughs> here. Who does Rishi Sunak? <laughs> well, he clearly, I mean, one of the people that he clearly rates is who, who we've been more critical about on the show is um, Dominic Raab, who he's made Deputy Prime Minister again. I think his days are numbered, you know. I think these, these I, I hate doing the no smoke without fire stuff, but yet another story today I see about Raab's behaviour and his conduct with, with civil servants. Not good, not good. Well, you did, you did predict Gavin Williamson, didn't you? I did, I did. And, um, and here's another one, Rory. Greg Brown... Your friend Gillian Keegan's getting it in the neck again. What stops conservatives from telling the truth and demonstrating integrity? Please see the attached, a letter in the local paper pointing out that Keegan, Gillian Keegan, had referred to investment in Royal Sussex County Hospital in Brighton as, quotes one of 40 hospitals being built by 2030 as part of the government's new hospital programme, when in fact it's actually 
just one building as part of a hospital. What do you say to that, Rory? Well, I, 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 I don't know what to say to that, um, except I still think that, that uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm getting into a difficult ground here, but I think Gillian Keegan is a much, much better person than many of the other people I serve in the House of Commons. And, and it, it may be that many politicians uh, are, are not perfect people, but she definitely was somebody who I thought had energy, integrity, and I, I thought was a good thing. So I'll continue to defend her to the hilt, and I'd like to see her prime minister. Oh, wow. You want her to be prime minister? Yeah. Like do you really, oh no, Roy, 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 do you really, really think, let's just think this through. I know we, I know we've been lowering the bar, right? Boris Johnson became prime minister, Liz Truss became prime minister. <laughs> she's, she's upping the bar. She's upping <laughs> That's the bar. what I'm saying. Do you really think she's. Yeah, yeah, no, she's definitely, no, she definitely, definitely is upping the bar. She'd be a big improvement, definitely on Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. Much, um, I agree that's a pretty low, low bar. What about, what about on Rishi, what about on Rishi Suno? I, I, we've been a, disagreeing about this a bit, haven't we? And I, I think it's nice to be able to disagree agreeably a bit about this because we obviously agreed ferociously on the fact that Boris Johnson was terrible and this trust was terrible. I've been, I've, I've been sort of reassured in some ways by Rishi Sunak. I don't think he'll win the next election. I don't think you need be threatened about that. I think it's almost impossible to turn the situation around. But oh, I don't agree. Uh, he's, with that. He definitely represents a more intelligent, thoughtful conservatism. And one thing I will say for him is that I knew people who worked for Liz Truss and for Rishi Sunak when he was Chief Secretary of the Treasury. And my goodness, they preferred working for Rishi Sunak. The civil servants found him a much, much better boss, which I think is a sign of a good character. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a question here, Roy. Have you, have you noticed your Twitter following falling? And is my Twitter following falling? Is my Twitter following falling? Well, Annie Redmond says, I'd really like to understand why I appear to have unfollowed you and a number of others involved in highlighting the current gross political situation without any action on my part. So I've lost a few thousand have you? followers. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, I might have done. I'm on 496,000. Maybe that's right. Maybe I was closer to 500,000. I haven't lost that many there. Oh, I've got double. I'm still double. I'm still double you. You're, you're close to a million. I'm just only on half a million. This, is a, this may be another kind of Musk thing going on that... Well, I obviously have lots of conspiracy theories about this, and I thought that he was inserting himself in my feed. Um, but actually, <laughs> it, it turns out that, in fact, he's not really doing that. Apparently, he hasn't yet got around to changing those sort of fundamental algorithms. So I think a lot of what we're seeing is probably more to do with the fact that so many staff have been laid off, that basic maintenance isn't taking place on the site. Uh, One of the big things he's done in all his companies, he did it with Tesla, he did it with his space company, is to go in very, very hard and get rid of a lot of staff. So I think it's more about the site creaking and less about him putting in innovations. Yeah, but this is, this, these are specific people who have written to us saying that we, they have unfollowed us when they didn't. Okay, now, sorry, here, no, I, I haven't asked you enough questions. Go on then, Roy. So uh, here's a question for you. Um, if, if you're comfortable with this, this be, be is a question. Opinions on the Sinn Féin rise in Ireland. Is that something mm. you've been thinking about much? I think you have to think about it because I think there's, it's not impossible. That they, well, the rise is happening both north and south. Now, I think that I saw an interview with Leo Varadkar, uh, who will be the next Taoiseach, and he was very, very clear that he could see no possible arrangement between his party and Sinn Féin because he saw them essentially as very left-wing and all sorts of – he had very fundamental differences with them. Um, but if you if you think about what's happening in the north, I mean, Sinn Féin – they have risen. And the reason that politics is now in such a mess in Northern Ireland 
it's a little bit like, you know, when we did the Scotland Act and we created the, the Scottish Parliament and we, we developed an electoral system that was, was specifically built, designed, so that no single party ever had a majority. And, of course, at that point, it was because we, the Labour Party, were so powerful. And, of course, since then, the SNP have become very, very powerful, and they have had periods with that majority. And likewise, I think when we did the Good Friday Agreement and we had this kind of inbuilt, you have to have the two, there's essentially a kind of an inbuilt veto, one over the other, um, and I think that was, even if only at the psychological level, we probably, our thinking was driven by the idea that the unionists are probably going to be in charge for quite a long time, which of course they have been. And now, of course, Sinn Féin have risen, to use the questioner's word, and it's created real difficulties, which the DUP can dress up as being about the protocol all they want. But actually, it's about their psychological inability, I think, to accept that rise. So it poses a lot of problems for all the parties. Um, and it, they are a very, very different sort of party. And of course, because they've been debated and covered mainly because of, of their role in uh, in the bigger picture. Well, their connections to terrorism too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, gosh, on that serious note, time for a close. And thank you very much for a, a great Q&A. Speak soon. See you soon. 